0: Hello and
1: welcome to Behind the Book Podcast. My name is Cecilia. And I'm Sabrina. And for this week, we have a very special guest. With us is Siobhan Williams-Shen, a first runner-up for the Los Angeles Review Flash Fiction Contest and a Best of the Net Award finalist. She was also a Pushcart Prize nominee, a winner of the Loft Literary Center's Mentor Series, and a fellow with the Givens Foundation for African American Literature. A Tin House and Vona Workshop alum, her poetry and prose have appeared or are forthcoming in Diode, Anomaly, Cosmonauts Avenue, and others. When she's not teaching with the Minnesota Prison Writing Workshop, she can be found in her house obsessing over her plants. But that is a very lengthy introduction, and she would do a lot better in introducing herself.
2: <laughs> Hi, um am Siobhan, William Shen um i am a teacher of various words i'm a words teacher that's what i call myself i'm a storyteller through poetry and creative writing i come from a family of storytellers Um, my dad is from the deep rural south mississippi my mom is from minneapolis but all her siblings and her mom are from birmingham alabama so my roots are very deep i call myself a 1.5 minnesotan generation Minnesotan because my mom is partially Minnesotan, but yeah, um, everyone else deep south. And my dad, he would tell me so many stories um, about our family, our family's history, and that's what I would fall asleep to and the folk tales that he made up and the folk tales that were passed down. So that has, in turn, made me a person who prides themselves in telling stories about my family, um, about my African-American history, about history of people descended from slavery um, and how that shows up in my writing and my teaching and helping to center marginalized voices so that way they can be their own storytellers.
0: Wow, I like listening to your bio just at a start, I, my mouth was on the floor because I'm, you're such an impressive person and for that, I am so thankful that you have agreed to join us on this podcast, but I love your mission so much, specifically with the lens of Windmill because that is our focus this year. We have a very uh, diverse undergraduate staff and this year we came in and we kind of wanted to revamp what we were doing with our publication and the voices that we are highlighting and something that we're seriously focusing on right now. As both working with emerging voices as well as voices that have been previously underheard, underrepresented, and just left in the margins for so long. So I am so happy to have you here and just to begin this discussion.
2: I'm happy to be here and thank you for the invite. You know, I'm just a normal person. I put my pants one leg at a time. I literally just had a moment where I was like, I do two legs at a time. And I realized that is not the case. <laughs> well what if you're wearing a skirt then it is the case or like a dress where you put it over your head or
1: like jumpsuits <laughs> i feel like jumpsuits may be an exception mm-hmm. yeah like a <laughs> i feel like you jump into other like you like one leg at a time <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if you're on tiktok but there was a trend of like two people holding up pants and then you would like use them as like a launching pad and jump into your pants and then they would pull it up and you'd be like done anyway that's two legs at a time
2: (laughs) my partner's on tiktok yeah he keeps me in um contact with all the latest post vines that's what i call tiktok post vines just too many words (laughs) for me to remember i already have words in my brain honestly i would have to
0: say like sabrina and i joke that like We're both English majors, and we're like, English is hard. Like Words are impossible to understand and to speak or write. But on that topic of just words being hard, you kind of discussed this in your introduction of how you want to share the stories that you grew up listening to and just like amplifying marginalized voices. But
1: what
2: specific moment in your life made you want to become a writer? Um, Well, my parents are both artists. My parents are actually, they were actually in a band. Um, The band had... Um, broken up as I got older because I was a very demanding child. Babysitters want to babysit me because I try to pack a suitcase and like follow my parents. Um, so they took me on tour. Um, That's so cool. But my parents are artists, and uh, my dad also does sculpture. And um, I grew up with a deep appreciation of the arts. Um, I can think about the I can think about various moments in my life where I I fall in love with words. My mom, um, back when I was younger, she would go to the nail salon and she would have me pick out colors for her. And I'd pick out colors based on how cool I thought the names were. So Midnight Blue was one of my favorites and it still is one of my favorite colors. And yeah, I would like flip this over like Flamingo Pink. And she's like, mom, no, 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 pick a different color. But I wasn't picking them on like the actual color. It's just like how cool the names were. And I think about my dad, he did a lot of um, contracting and construction work and I'd go to the hardware store with him. (laughs) But um, I would, um, you know, the paint sample things, um, how now they have sample limits, each person take five, five maximum. I feel like they started those sample limits because of me. <laughs> I would just like take a bunch and like hide them under my mattress because I thought the color names were so cool. Like cornflower blue, egg yolk yellow, it's not just yellow but it's egg yolk yellow. It's not just blue, it's cornflower and midnight blue. So those experiences combined made me realize how words can be used to create such vivid imagery without having pictures. And I must've been like first grade, second grade when a lot of those experiences happened. So I grew up thinking, okay, I'm going to be a writer, I'm going to be a writer. And then I did the journalism club in sixth grade and from sixth grade to 11th grade, I'm like, I am going to be a journalist. I am dead set on being a journalist. And I was in the newspaper club in high school and I was editor and all these other writing things. But when it came time to me start writing my college applications, Oh my gosh, I um <laughs> I wrote everything about neuroscience and cognitive science because <laughs> I became convinced that, you know, I, I won't have a career in this. I will only have it can be a side hustle, but I don't wanna hustle too hard to the point where I am being the whole starving artist thing. Um, Yeah, so my college applications, they're like, okay, I want to major in cognitive science with a double minor in neuroscience and philosophy. (laughs) Cause we can name all of Jupiter's moons, but we don't know the chemical equation for love. We can name the depth of the ocean, but we can't quantify intelligence. And (laughs) as I got older, like those things shouldn't be quantified, but (laughs) um, just, Those are only examples, just the brain is the last frontier I said in my essay, how there's so much that we don't understand about the human brain and why we do things. Um, I ended up switching from cognitive science to psychology um, as I felt that, at least at the school I went to, but I also see this about um, a lot of science-based, programs in general that don't have an emphasis on social justice can be like very racist. And I know these aren't new concepts and not saying that other fields are racist right. just when people have the assumption that they don't have to talk about these things, you know, like colorblindness uh and all the problems that they cause. So I left from the more sciencey things and I went to more the social science with still of an emphasis on neuroscience things at least i can talk about race then um but after i graduated i worked in a tech company um and i hated it so much so much uh, and yeah it was a very arduous process or like mentally taxing process and Afterwards, I'm like, I my life has no passion. I am just doing a job day-to-day thing. Um, and a friend had sent a Facebook invite to a poetry show that they were doing. And it was probably one of those mass Facebook invites. Um, but I thought, like, you know, it's a Saturday. This place is closed. I have nothing else to do. So I showed up, and I heard... I heard them perform, I heard her perform, and I heard the people around her perform, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I want this so much. I want this so much. And that was the Gibbons Foundation for African American Literature. And the application deadline had already passed, but I like went up to the director like, please let me submit. And she's like, okay, whatever. So I submitted, I got in um, for poetry and then from there, I heard from some other people about the Loft Literary Center's mentorship and creative writing, and, um, creative pose and poetry. And then I applied to that. And from there, that cohort uh, told me about Hamlin University's MFA program. And then I applied to that. And yeah, after, after leaving the tech company, it was like a very straightforward trajectory into more writing-based communities. And after my MFA, yeah, here I am a year later doing writing stuff for a living and I'm so much happier.
1: So you also worked in Coffeehouse Press for a little bit as an intern. How was like working in that and getting a publishing point of view as a writer?
2: Yeah, it was really interesting because I realized how, um, how there's so many non-writers working in publishing and how I'm, a, how much I approach things from a very writer-based standpoint and that wasn't always the most helpful as far as marketing goes because there are so many other aspects of publishing company what makes a uh, business profitable uh, that I was just like yeah let's focus on the poetry um, but something that I really liked while working there is figuring out the marketing. That is so
0: cool and Honestly, an interesting perspective that I never really considered. You said that publishing is full of a lot of non-writers. So it's interesting to see like how some people just go straight into publishing. Some people have like that mixed experience, and then some are writers going into publishing, how all that combines and how that strengthens the process because you have so many new perspectives. And I'm curious you somewhat mentioned like how your initial reaction to the publishing industry, Was there anything that you noticed about that process from a writer's perspective that just struck you as something interesting or something that possibly could be improved in the industry or that
2: works really well? Um, It's really important for you to know the press and the press's aesthetics. So you're not sending things to a company that... um, it's not necessarily that they don't think it's quality, it just doesn't fit in with their general aesthetic. And I know you, as publishing, both of you, as publishing folks and people interested in pursuing publishing as more long term careers, are aware of this. Um, yeah, and how you would get YA fiction for um, yeah this adult press and um, not saying it wasn't good, but yeah, it just wasn't for the press. Or like, you have these comical novels that weren't aligned with the press's um, marketing. A lot of times those end up in the no pile simply because of genre.
0: Did that influence the way that you personally went about the submission process as a writer?
2: Yeah, prior to Coffee House, I didn't know anything about publishing. And yeah, I didn't really know what submittable was. Um, I didn't know how to do a lot of things that I know how to do now associated with publishing, like how to write a cover letter for lit journals. And I had to learn a lot of that on the fly (laughs) and what to pay attention for, and to read um, journals ahead to find out what they're like, read their mission statements, read fast writers. Basically the only reason why I have a Twitter is it's because it's like writing LinkedIn and like following all the editors, following all the lit mags, getting to know what they retweet, getting to know who they follow, who's friends with who that's definitely helped improve my search, or if nothing else, this magazine, I was really, really interested in. And now after seeing some of their retweets or who they follow, I'm definitely less interested in things that I wouldn't necessarily get from just reading their magazine.
1: I definitely agree with the fact that Twitter is the book LinkedIn of the world because both Cece and I have worked in literary agencies as interns and I personally, from my side, was helping the assistant to three agents that I was working for, like get ready to jump into the literary agent sphere. And Twitter was something she used constantly as a way to like research people. So I'd be on their Twitter and I'd be like looking at what they post, trying to find all of their pieces and collect them. But in talking about your pieces, what was it like having your first piece published in a literary magazine?
2: Yeah, the first thing that I ever had published. It was a poem in my application essay, I guess, for this grant called the Still I Rise Grant for African-American Women through the COIL magazine, which later had uh, the poem that I submitted, they had submitted for a Pushcart and Best of the Net um, awards. And that's how I became a finalist. And yeah, that was really exciting. When I had first gotten um, the letter saying, or the email saying that like, hey, your work's been accepted and you won this grant. I had this theory like, like, oh, they're messing with me. This person found out that I submitted and they created this fake account. And (laughs) they created this fake account and they're just messing with me. There's no way that I won. So my first reaction was it was angry because there was a lot of self-doubt behind this. Like there's no way that I could have won. It's obvious that somebody's, yeah, this is fake. After calming down for a couple hours, I'm like, no, Siobhan, this isn't fake. It definitely gave me the boost I needed to submit to other magazines. And yeah, that feeling, initial feeling of of anger that was fueled by self-doubt, that later became excitement.
1: I know. I, for one, I'm really accept- like really happy that it was real and not someone trying to pull a real cruel prank. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: um, that, looking back on that, I'm like, that was, Shvan, what were you thinking? <laughs> well, I know exactly what I was thinking, but still, it just seems so ridiculous now. <laughs> but I was young and I didn't really know what I was doing. So I was doubtful that anybody would
0: think that I knew what I was doing. Like I mentioned, Wynne-Mill's goal is to support emerging authors. So hopefully the audience for this podcast will be emerging authors. And I think that is something that a lot of people deal with It's like, I know for me personally, I'm constantly battling with imposter syndrome, but I think that is an experience that other uh, authors may also encounter just because you are constantly battling that uncertainty, even though, Other people like can see your potential and see your talent, but sometimes you're just in your head, especially with such a creative field where there is no right way to do it. It's just putting your heart on a page.
1: Yeah, writing is hard and I definitely still struggle in practicing it. But on that note, what is advice you would give to emerging writers about both writing and publishing?
2: Well, this is all about... um diversity and diversity amplifying marginalized voices. Um, there's this fiction writer, who's definitely blowing up in the literary, literary scene and just super prolific. Leslie Arima, um, Leslie Neka Arima, um, who was my mentor when I was fellow for the Gibbons Foundation, definitely look her up. She is phenomenal. Yeah, when I was dealing with imposter syndrome, um, she had told me, have the confidence of a mediocre white man. And honestly, the best advice that I've been in, just going into a lot of these business meetings, and I'm like, you guys are so confident and you're so mediocre. <laughs> if I know what I'm doing, why do I have to shrink? Um, So I think an underlying message beyond all that, like, why should you have to shrink if you know what you're doing? And even if you're still figuring it out, there are these people who really don't know what they're doing, but like have the confidence as if they're like the next Baldwin or something. Why dull your shine when others aren't?
0: I, I love that so much because there's no reason where you should feel like you have to shrink or but just walking into the meeting itself, you feel like you already have been shrunken and you're just so small compared to everyone else. I'm also curious, has there been any, like, awful advice that you've gotten for writing or for publishing that you might also want to share? Um,
2: make your writing relatable. I absolutely hate, hate, hate that because relatability is often used. Um, in the metric of very white cis, um, upper middle class, middle class standards. Um, I remember my grad school they had a um a reading yeah some of the readers like i i was so bored like so bored because i couldn't relate at all i don't know what it's like to be so blonde that people can't see my leg hairs i don't know what it's like to have my parents listen to like this very very specific type of central european music and acting as if those are the experiences that everyone should have, but they didn't have to do, do the work to know mine. So write the best you can rather than trying to make your work relatable. That's
0: such a a terrible piece of advice that you turned into a good piece of advice.
1: Relatability is overrated <laughs> at this rate in our lives. It crafts a conversation that ends up affecting other areas of life because I know publishing also needs that shift towards not going with what's relatable in the intended audience that is just misconstrued to constantly be white. I'm glad to like have that awful advice like Cece said turned into good advice.
2: Shout out to my mentor Erica Dawson who wrote the book When Rap Spoke Straight to God. Um, Definitely look up that book and she was the one who gave me that advice. Siobhan, write the best you can. Don't feel like you have to write for any audience.
0: Sounds like you've had some
2: amazing mentors and I will 100% be looking them all up. Writing is about community. That's also good advice. Find a community, find people that you trust, find people who are willing to look at your work without the eyes of relatability, without um, sometimes being able to say like, I don't know what that means. And I know that I'm not supposed to know what this means. Maybe you could have someone else look at this uh, as I don't feel like it's my place to look at this. Having people who are able to say that and say that with humility is so important as well as people that you like, (laughs) but also people who can see your work critically. Wow.
0: You just like dropped so much knowledge and I personally am going to use this all in my writing. Thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom and again, joining us on this podcast. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Yeah, I'm going to echo everything Cece said. But with that in mind, where can people find you on social media?
2: Yeah, all my handles, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, are at Siobhan W. Shin, C-H-A-V as in violin, O-N-N-W-S-H-E-N. And my website is also SiobhanWShin.com.
1: Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. Thank you for tuning in for today's episode. Special thanks to Siobhan for taking the time to speak with us.
0: Yes, a special thanks to Siobhan and all the wonderful advice they shared with us. To keep up with this podcast and other conversations from the Windmill staff, be sure to visit our website, HofstraWoodmill.com, and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Windmill Journal. As always, happy reading and writing, and thanks for listening.